The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And a big welcome to anybody who's walked through the door for the first time. I know that's not always such an easy thing to do, so welcome, big welcome. And uh, please let us know if you have any questions. Gene Fagerstrom, one of our longtime teachers and leaders, is our program host tonight. So you can check in with Gene or with me if you, at the end, just want to get oriented or have any questions. And uh, as I mentioned this morning in the Sunday morning group, and um, by the way, there's three of these weekly practice groups, also on Wednesday night at 730 Sunday night, like tonight, is 7, and Sunday morning starts at 10.30. And that's often what we do um, at the beginning of the new year is take a fresh look. And especially these days, you know, when I started back in the early 80s, it was, you know, there were definitely people meditating and doing Buddhist meditation in particular, but it wasn't this sort of explosion of mindfulness stuff that's out there now, and it's become a big industry, and it's everywhere, at least to some degree. And I'm not saying that's bad, but it can be confusing because people are talking about it in different ways. And ultimately, you don't want to be dependent on how anybody's talking about it, myself included, or the Buddhist text. You want all of that stuff to be a pointing out or inspiration for you to check what might these folks be pointing to. Like what in my own experience is someone like the Buddha or somebody at the front of the room here at Common Ground, what are they pointing to with, with all that words? <laughs> what of it might actually be useful for me? They were just getting to know the mind. And if you've been around, you've probably heard me say, you know, it is truly amazing that most of us a lot of us living pretty privileged lives in the sense that we're not completely overwhelmed by war or poverty or whatever, illness. But what's truly amazing is how rarely we human beings have been interested in the mind. Not kind of abstractly interested in mind, but using awareness, right? paying attention, like turning the attention to the activity, the subjective experience we have of having a mind, a heart, this inner space, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Like when's the last time you sat down with a cup of tea? Oh yeah, there's this inner space of the heart. Let, let me observe. Let me feel into. Let me notice what it is to have a mind. Or, you know, even more specifically, like, how did I get all tight? Or, you know, if when we're feeling really free and released and not all caught up, how did that happen? Like, can I, in hindsight at least, track, like, how did the heart get so free or so light right now, unencumbered? And other times, how did my mind, my heart, my body get so tight? so burdened, so entangled, <clears throat> excuse me, so upset. 
it's really a profound lack of curiosity. And, and I, I mean, I think there are reasons. There's always reasons for everything. And one of the reasons, <clears throat> or part of the reasons, is our, the way we pay attention, the kind of um, what we're able to pay attention to is rather gross. Not gross in a negative sense, but dense, obvious, concrete. And we haven't developed the talent to pay attention, to notice, and be interested in what's relatively subtle. You know, all you have to do is look at our entertainments. It's relatively gross. There's nothing subtle. Explosions, dramatic, romantic scenarios, you know, <clears throat> how many movie, movies are about apocalypse? <laughs> zombies and whatever, or some kind of provocative this or that. And it's not just entertainment. It's like the food we eat. Everything's got to be interesting and big and powerful and leave an impression. So, of course, the more that we attune to that obvious, gross, dense, intense stuff, we lose interest, we become oblivious to everything that's subtle. But in this you know, general Eastern approach, and more specifically Buddhist approach to taking care of our lives, in this place, subtle is significant. Subtle is much more significant in terms of our actual stress and suffering than the gross. So a lot of what we're learning in the practice because we can't stop the gross stuff, even our own mental activity and the drama-making mind, you know, the catastrophizing mind, whatever those habits are for each of us, that's not going to stop anytime soon. So it's more like being able to not get confused by all that drama, whether it's coming from the inside our own mind or from the, the environment around us. It's like, oh yeah, things are spinning, Lots of this, lots of that. What else is happening? And we're really developing a talent, a skill, to notice what's subtle. Like, for example, how the mind is relating. Or the quality of the intention in the mind. Or whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. We're so quickly into our reaction to unpleasantness, or our reaction when it's pleasant, or ignoring experience when it's neutral, we're so into the reaction that we don't actually connect with alertness and relaxation with the underlying feeling tone. Oh yeah, this is pleasant now. Like right now. Is anybody in the room actually connecting, aware of whether for you right now the experience you're having is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? I mean, hopefully, with that prompt, but it's a little vacuous, like, what do I pay attention to, right? But it's kind of a thing you would expect a human being to be able to connect with. Like, I'll give you a billion dollars if you know whether the moment is pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant, you know? But it, we're not in the habit of sort of sensing, oh, yeah, it's pleasant. 
you know, like even something simple, touching something, like is that pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant? We know the extremes. You know, if you were getting the best massage of your life, there would be no doubt, oh yeah, this is pleasant. If someone were torturing you, you'd know this is unpleasant. But we're mostly oblivious, right? I mean, we know more by how we, oh, I must have been cold because I put my sweater on. It's not like we actually had that a few moments of that clear, calm, alert, bright. Oh, yeah, coldness is like this. Being cold feels like this. Right? Really connecting, knowing. Maybe I should put a sweater on. Put a sweater on. We just sort of, it's almost like we're on autopilot. And in that way, in this is sort of how the Buddha defined or described human suffering as being pushed around by our likes and dislikes. Doesn't that sound familiar? And sometimes we have a little bit, you know, when we're alone and no one's watching and we're at, like at home or wherever, and it's like, sometimes we see this with our pets too, you know, looking for satisfaction, looking for food here, looking for comfort there. And we see that in ourselves sometimes and we see, oh, sometimes we'll have that perspective. Oh, this mind is getting pushed around by my likes and dislikes. I look at the internet looking for something pleasant, nothing there. Check this out here. Call a friend there, you know, or trying to get rid of some unpleasant feeling. You know, like if I had a difficult interaction that left over some yucky feeling in my heart, you know, how I try to distract myself. Maybe I'll go eat something. Maybe I'll do this or do that. And then we start to get this picture. And this is a lot of what the Buddha initially wants us to do, not just in terms of our own life, but also with our friends in the wider world, to basically very quickly see, oh yeah, human beings being pushed around by their likes and dislikes and ignoring anything that isn't relatively or obviously pleasant or unpleasant. I mean, that's not a bad description. Even like getting here on Sunday night. It's like some of us came because we like the idea of being a Buddhist meditator. We like what we read about what might be possible, the idea of calm or whatever. Or you don't like your life, you feel like you're broken, you're hoping that the Buddhist meditation practice is going to fix you. Right? So even relatively good things come or are initiated because of you know, our likes and dislikes. So it's, it just comes with the territory of being a human being, but we can wake up to it we can begin to see it. And that's part of the reason, like with our formal training, we sit still. You can lie down, you can stand, but one of the common, most common postures in meditation practice is just to sit. And then we're still in that world of likes and dislikes. I mean, we're relatively simple environment. You know, let's say we found a nice room that the temperature is just right, not too many distractions or disturbances, but still, what's moving in the mind some stuff moving in the mind will be likable. Some of it will be not likable. A lot of it might be neutral. So we're still in that realm of likes and dislikes, even when we're sitting. And we get to, to practice. Like 
well, what is the skillful way, given I live in the world of likes and dislikes? That part's not going to change. I can't imagine, right? Can anybody imagine a world where there won't be a diversity of experiences of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? So the question for us, like if we're interested in being more free, more released, less burdened with our lives, then we have to learn how to be in a world of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality without being pushed around. And that's, you can imagine your sitting practice that way. I want to be alert, I want to be relaxed, right? And I'm experimenting like, oh yeah, the body feels like this. I could react, try to fix it. But let's just see, before needing to fix it, let's just see there's the pain or the discomfort. There's the not liking of it. Can I be open to that, alert and relaxed with that? And not have to be pushed around by the pain in the body. Or there's an exciting thought about tomorrow. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. But do I have to be pushed around? Can I just let that thought and the excitement and the anticipation, just let that be what it is? So we're not taking the bait. And even there's even bait, in a sense, with neutrality, with neutral experience, which is to not notice it which is why we have that quality that I mentioned in the guided instructions about being alert. And it's not easy to be alert to what's neutral. And of course, as you might imagine, most of our experience when we're sitting or just generally throughout the day is relatively neutral. It isn't obviously or strongly pleasant or obviously or strongly unpleasant. And we have this deep habit to ignore neutral. It's neutral. Why would I be interested, be alert, connect, know T-shirt on the back feels like this now? You know, hearing the hum of the blower is like this. So we're, we have this habit of grasping what's pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, and ignoring the neutral. I mean, just to kind of keep it simple, and all three reactions are stressful. Needing to be away from what's unpleasant is stressful. Feeling vulnerable that unpleasantness will come my way is stressful. Being dependent on pleasant is stressful. Being afraid that what's pleasant is going to go away is stressful. Being confused inundated by neutrality is stressful because I don't care about it. Right? I'm only concerned about what's good and bad. What could kill me and what can make me happy. That's all I care about. Don't confuse the scene with neutrality. I'm not going to pay attention to you. right? So it's stressful. That relationship of wanting, thinking we should ignore it. And so we, we have this you know, neurotic or screwed up relationship to phenomena, to the what makes up our life, one experience after another, whether it's neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, doesn't matter. We have the skewed relationship to it, and all of it is stressful. So when we're sitting, our basic meditation practice, you know, is to kind of 
takes time, but to really trust a more uh, <coughs> like uh, dropping away. That's why we find, you know, a relatively serene place to begin our practice. We want to go to kindergarten, right? Nobody starts their meditation practice in a stressful environment. I mean, unless you don't have a choice, right? Because you, it, we learn better when it's relatively simple. Okay, can I cultivate this openness that has both the quality of relaxation, both of body and mind, released as much as is available, and alertness, like I really want to connect, really want to see, really want to understand, not cognitively, but directly, experientially. Really want to feel what's here to feel, see, sense, what's here to feel and sense. And we're seeing if we can be right in the middle in this alert and relaxed way, if there's a way to be really vividly here and now without being pushed around. In kindergarten. And when we get good at kindergarten, then we go to first grade. You know, we take it out on the road. And we say, okay, I'm at home. I'm home alone. I'm just going to have breakfast. I'm just going to brush my teeth. Can I do it there? And eventually, you know, we're interested in being in grad school and we'll do it with difficult people or at work and there's somebody who pushes our buttons. And we're seeing, can I be relaxed and alert here? Can I feel the enormity of my reactivity, my not liking this person, but not be confused. So that what I say to the person, what I do in that situation, is really arises from a sense of what might be helpful or useful, not just a reaction to my aversion or to my hating what's going on or hating this person. I mean, that is really important. And it isn't about, you know, what... You know, there's definitely a place for learning how to control your emotions, seething but not letting it show. But that's stressful too. This is is a step beyond that, or maybe many steps beyond that. Well, we're, we've trained, you know, it takes time of course, but we're training that when, even when really intensely pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral things happen, We've trained the mind not to be confused by it. Okay, this is really un- intensely unpleasant. Or this is really you know, deeply neutral. This is really deeply pleasant. And it's this experience being felt, being known. And not that we are saying these words, but then the obvious question is, what way of relating is helpful for all concerned? What way of me showing up in this moment, plants, seeds, of happiness for me and everybody else involved versus what way of me showing up is going to plant seeds of stress for myself and for others. And just, you know, keep our mind open that we, you know, not to presume that like I have to choose between taking care of myself and taking care of somebody else, that maybe there's a way to relate skillfully to whatever's happening in the moment that really is good for everyone. Now, sometimes someone might be hurt by what we need to say, but that might be for their ultimate well-being. And certainly that can be our intention. So 
This is from uh, one of my teachers, a Burmese Buddhist monk, Saito Utejaniya. Comes to the States not so much recently. He's had cancer the last couple years. Um, but people, a lot of Westerners, including people here at Kamagran, have gone out to study at his, uh, the monastery where he teaches in uh, near Rangoon in Miramar, Burma. These are a few things that he's written, or probably transcriptions from his Q&A sessions with uh, retreatants who have been on retreat with him. We need to thoroughly understand how much the three unskillful roots uh, unskillful root qualities of the mind are torturing and tormenting us. We haven't learned this lesson fully yet. We don't learn our lesson the first time, the second time, or the third time. We only learn, we only turn for help from wholesome qualities when we realize the unwholesome, unskillful qualities are ruining, I'm sorry, are running our lives and we can no longer stand them. And this is what this steady, clear, non-judging, relaxed, and alert presence, mindful presence, right? We see what's running our life. We see the tendencies of how we react to sense experience, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sense experience. And we see that it isn't helpful. Like, you might have a treat when you go home tonight. But sitting here wanting that to happen is stressful. doesn't mean it's wrong to have you know, a granola bar or whatever when you go home. But craving, practicing being dependent on that happening, wanting that to happen is stressful right now. And that anybody whose mind is alert and clear and relaxed will see wanting is stressful. Craving is stressful. Same thing, if you're going to have a difficult thing at work tomorrow with some colleague and to be fuming about it now is stressful. And it isn't a question about like, um, should you be fuming about it or not? Just be brutally honest. Oh no, the way the mind is relating, what the my mind is doing, I don't know anything about anything except what's happening right here And this is stressful. Hating that person, wanting that person not to be there. This is stressful. And like with neutrality, like nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. This can't be right. Right? Have you ever caught yourself, those of you who've been meditating for a while, it's like like trying to sneakily stir the pot so something happens in your meditation. You're sitting there. It's funny because we think, theoretically, that we like calm and peace. But when things are settled and there's no drama, it's like, wait a minute. Because we don't know who we are when things settle. right? Because we're so associated or so identified with reactivity. Like that's who we think we are. And when we think about our friends, you know, if you were going to characterize one of your better friends, the things you would often mention, like out loud, would be like, oh, this, this is how they react in that situation. This is how they handle this. It's like how they react to situations. 
their likes and their dislikes, what pushes them around, what motivates them, or likes and dislikes. So this person really doesn't like this politician, or this, you know, this friend really loves to go on cruises, or you know, something like that. Or this person has a very even mind, sees pleasantness and unpleasantness as just something being known. Like, I don't know if I'd want a friend like that. <laughs> and what's really interesting to see that, like that capacity to sit right in the middle of your life, to feel the joys and the sorrows, the neutrality, and to really have that freedom just to be intimate. So then the activity of your personality, like how you show up, how you play, how you dance, how you interact. It's not like you lose the capacity to be a living, breathing, dancing, uh, responding human being. It's just not being characterized by greed, anger, and delusion. So greed, anger, and delusion are not the only motivating emotions. Play is a, right? You could play without greed, anger, and delusion, right? Think about way back when you were a child. You did a lot of things when the mind wasn't that infected with greed, anger, and delusion. I'm not saying kids' minds aren't infected by greed, anger, and delusion, but not all the time. Right? Love and appreciation. and There's all kinds of motivating forces. So what we're doing is we're learning that when greed, anger, and delusion is the motivating force, stress, seeds of stress are getting planted, and wisdom sees that and sees the consequence. And that just that recognition weakens that habit to react to knee pain by getting angry at it. What does that do? But that's what we do. We get afraid. We get tight. There's some good, um, I guess, sort of medical books. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is Soros, maybe, wrote about back pain. Anybody read his books? He's got several. I forget his first name. Dr. Soros, or I think it's Soros, something like that. He's, it's been a while now since his first book came up. And that many people have sort of taught this and there have been studies. But just in terms of back pain, you know, as a basic example, so let's say somebody actually strains something in their back and it hurts. And then there's a mind involved. Oh, my back hurts. I've got to work tomorrow. I've got to sit. I've got to lift. Oh, my God. Right? So the mind gets upset. That's called aversion, a fear, right? Not liking the pain. And that mental activity of aversion has implications for the body. The body freezes up as a kind of mirroring of that mental aversion. So there's the initial pain, and then there's the discomfort of the back freezing up because I'm afraid, I'm screwed because my back hurts. But now the mind is noticing the additional pain. Oh my God, it's getting worse. And then that feedback loop. And then if that's done over time, the freezing up, around pain, both mentally and physically, can turn out to be a much more significant 
problem than whatever the, the initial strain might have been. And this is happening in so many ways, on so many different layers. Because the body and the mind reflect each other in this way. Well, we don't have to do that. That's just bad habit. And it happens not because we're stupid or because we don't care. It's because the mind hasn't trained itself to pay attention. Because when we see clearly, we act based on what we're seeing and understanding. But if we're seeing superficially, then our thoughts about what's happening tend to dominate. And so we're really learning to feel into. We often call this like um, this embodiment, like orienting around the reality of embodiment, coming into the experience of the sensing body, the seeing body, the hearing body, the touching body, the smelling and tasting body. Learning to kind of because that's a, it's nice to use words like embodiment because it can be a counterweight to a lot of what's in spiritual practice about transcendence, which I like jokingly call it like, get me the hell out of here. Life is hard. Being a human being is hard. I want out. Right? So we go to, we sort of use lofty ideas of, you know, not being here. Basically, really beautiful distractions. And the mind is really amazing that way, right? When we fantasize, like if I fantasize about something horrendous happening to me, there's an energetic effect. If I imagine, you know, some kind of deep humiliation or whatever it might be. But if I imagine we're all one, it's all love, that idea has a really nice effect. The problem is I have to empty the garbage and I have to go to work. So that lofty, beautiful idea that I can sort of, I can, this is what the thinking, imagining mind, it can create a bubble that I can live in, but the bubble will always get popped and I'll be in this embodied state in relationship with power, things going on, and gender stuff going on, and racial stuff going on, class stuff going on, sexual attraction stuff going on. Messy. It's really messy. A lot of suffering, a lot of reverberations from past suffering, none of which we see and feel clearly, but it's definitely impacting how we're getting along. And then we get more desperate to go to that soft, lovely place again because we hate the world, because we can't control it, we can't fix it, can't turn it into utopia, and so we want out. And a lot of spiritual traditions, religious systems, have a little bit of this romantic or a lot of this romantic get-me-the-hell-out-of-here approach. And it sort of works. I mean... Probably all of us, in our own ways, have been in some beautiful setting with beautiful music and beautiful ritual and beautiful words and other things and have been uplifted by that. And for some people, it's not religious. It might have been like a concert 
with really, you know, music you find inspiring, for example, right? But then it ends, like I said. It doesn't, it's just going to be a temporary uh, upliftment. So the Buddhist teachings kind of understands this, and it's, you know, we can use it as a kind of medicine. We just don't want to approach it naively. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to get this medicine from doing it. It's going to make me feel better but I'm not going to pretend that it's more than what it is. It's just a group of people coming together and doing this thing, and there's this really good feeling, and I'm going to be mindful of that really good feeling, pleasantness, without imagining the pleasantness is more than what it is, without the need for attachment or dependence on it. That way I won't feel betrayed when I have to empty the garbage and go back to work or, you know, deal with my pet, or whatever that you find difficult. Oh, yeah. Because it's nice to change the channel and to do something that, for you, is uplifting and kind of take a break. It could be just something simple like seeing a silly movie that's fun, you know, and you kind of forget the world for a while because you're absorbed in somebody else's world, right? could even be a Zombie apocalypse movie. But at least it isn't your zombie apocalypse, right? And you feel like you've gotten a break for a while. I noticed this, uh, I told this story a while back, but when uh, I was well into my practice when we moved here in 1991, uh, Minneapolis, and uh, I met my partner, my wife, in New York City where we were living and practicing. And... uh, and I noticed, like, we would go to movies, and, I, you know, we like movies, and uh, good movies. <laughs> and I noticed, I w- I, it took a while, but I eventually started to notice how irritable I was after the movies. I'm sure Wynn noticed before me. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, I, I kind of connected the dots, and I saw it was exactly what I was just talking about. It's like I got absorbed in the movie, and then... The movie ended, and I realized I'm just me with this life, right? And it was like, because I, I kind of have had, you know, different people come into the spiritual life from different points of view. I came into the spiritual life from a young kid. Life seemed like miserable. And I kind of grew up in a nice family. I mean, I had a pretty privileged upbringing, North Minneapolis, Middle class, but, you know, really, you know, a pretty organized home, parents, relatively solid folks. But I just sort of, I remember like by five, I didn't trust Christmas anymore (laughs) because it never met my expectations. It was like, it was always disappointing. I was like, I didn't even care anymore by six, seven. I mean, I got a little, but then I always felt betrayed. You know, they'd break, the toys would break. How long is this going to last? Before it gets lost or it's one of my younger brothers smashes it, you know. And I just, all the way along, I had that sort of, uh, we joke about it in Buddhism. There's a teaching called the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is there is suffering. It has a cause. The third truth, there's an end to suffering. There's a path is the fourth. And there's a joke like, are you a firster? Like your mind is obsessed with the first noble truth, there is suffering. 
Or a thirdster, there's an end to suffering, right? Well, I was more the firster. Like, I just saw a lot of suffering. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit off balance. And you just have to know about our own mind, like, what do we see? But the nice thing about having that orientation is it's sort of like, well, does it have to be this way? What is the escape? Wanting to escape suffering is not the escape. Surprisingly, and this is the sort of step that the Buddha made loud and clear, getting interested in suffering turns out to be really impactful. But it's not easy to get interested in suffering when we're overwhelmed. So to whatever degree we're overwhelmed, maybe we grew up in a location where we're being oppressed in one way or another, or a war zone or whatever, it's not so easy. People in poverty, not so, they're not so easy about the cause, underlying cause for suffering. They just want relief, even if the relief makes it worse. And the Buddha gave a very graphic example of that in one of his talks about lepers, evidently at the time. And there, you know, I don't know much about leprosy, but you get these big wounds, open sores. And evidently, you could cauterize, you'd put it close to like red hot coals and you'd cauterize it, but it would ultimately make it much worse, but the itching would temporarily go away, and you'd feel a little bit of relief, but it would only get worse, right? Because then you got the, the burn and the scarring from the burn. And this is kind of the image the Buddha used to describe our approach. So when we see it enough in others and see it enough in ourselves, we're willing to put aside 30 minutes, an hour every day, go on a couple retreats a year if we can, to learn how to sit right in the middle of our life so we're not just acting out, you know, like on autopilot, this reactivity to our likes and dislikes and what's neutral. Because those habits can be transformed. They can be uprooted. But they ha- it's subtle and we have to create a mind, a heart, that is stable enough to be clear and has an inner contentment or an inner peace or happiness so that I'm when my knee starts to hurt or there's an irritating sound or some really pleasant experience comes by, I'm not thrown off balance. Oh yeah, that's really pleasant, that's really unpleasant, that's neutral. This stuff being felt, being known. We're really learning how to be even right in the middle, you know, initially of a little storm, and then eventually even really big storms. And this is the really satisfying thing, you know, being kind of at the center here um, at Common Ground, is I meet a lot with people who've been practicing for a while. And what's really satisfying both in my own practice and hearing other people is some big time thing happens. We had a beautiful memorial service here on Saturday night, last night. It was like 200 people tried to come in. This person was really well-loved. Long-time community member <coughs> named Mark Youngdahl. And, uh, and he was pretty young. He was about my age and had got stomach cancer. Found out when it was already metastasized. And I don't know, early summer and was dead by November, late November or something like that. And uh, But he was so grounded. And he's got kids that are still in high school, college, and 
a wonderful life in so many ways, but he was so grounded and even. And that's, I really attribute to the wisdom that he cultivated, not just in his meditation, but just paying attention in life, getting interested in how the mind is, how the mind works. And it's like, so when something big happens, like, oh, I'm dying, and there's nothing left to do about it, right? It's like, okay, well, it's like this now. It feels like this. This is the wave of fear. This is this. This is that. It's just what I've been doing my whole life, being right in the middle, being relaxed and alert, and realizing I just, like as a practitioner, as a human being, all we actually have to do is connect and connect, and connect, and connect. With as much integrity, and much clarity, and release, trust, relaxation as we can. And even when we can't do that, like I'm reacting, there's never anything in the way of, in a sense, stepping back and realize, okay, I'm reacting, and this is what that feels like. This is what that looks like. So we can't break it. So even if you did something, you conspired amongst yourself and you did something to deeply humiliate me right now, and I really reacted, I took it personally, whatever you did, you know. There would be nothing in the way for the wisdom in the mind to realize, okay, I'm feeling this and I'm really blowing it. Here I am, a Buddhist meditation teacher, and I'm really losing it in front of the crowd. And this feels like this. It looks like this. It's like this. It's just this experience being known. And then even if I lost that, like I know I can't even do that, you know, and I run out of the room screaming or whatever, you know, would be the sort of most humiliating thing. Even that, even wisdom could see that. Yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes we really lose it and it's like this. It feels like this. Because mindfulness, this wisdom awareness that I'm talking about, it doesn't really care what it's knowing. You can't stain it in a sense. That's why it's associated with so much space, the space of freedom. And it's really hard to talk about. But when you experience this, the freedom that comes with cultivating that balance, clear, intimate, undefended, non-judging presence, when you cultivate it, some of you are nodding your heads, you know it comes with this flavor of freedom. And the Buddha says, this flavor of freedom is unforgettable. It's subtle. But when we, when the mind is stable enough, sensitive enough to notice it, it's unforgettable. And then what arises with more and more of these tastes of the freedom that's available is, oh, This is what life is actually about. Not about getting stuff, not about getting rid of stuff, not about raising families. All of that is fine. But what life is really about is cultivating or following the thread of that freedom in whatever we do with our life. Raising kids, not raising kids, being a corporate titan, not doing that. Whatever we do, If it's not about freedom and following this thread of freedom, uncovering the freedom, 
then we're really setting ourselves up, you know, because whatever else you're getting isn't really something you can own or isn't really going to be there to take care of us. It will be something that comes and goes, like everything else. It's so interesting to see the so-called celebrities and, you know, people who have everything getting old. Isn't it? It's impactful. Or people who were whatever, for whatever reason, at the top and then get that humiliation. Just thinking of Bill Cosby now. You know, he was so loved. He was like, I don't know. When I was a kid, you know, I grew up in the, I was born in the late 50s and grew up in the 60s and his albums were like gold. You know, and the kids who had his albums, you know, they became your friends. (laughs) You know, and he really just, and then, you know, just that arc. And so like, this is, what are we really uh, seeing as a refuge? What is our refuge? And like, what advice would we give to somebody who's had that kind of humiliation? Or something difficult happened? Or just dying of cancer? What, from a point of view of sharing our wisdom, do we just say, I'm afraid to say you're screwed? Is there freedom when someone's in the dying process or someone is experiencing deep humiliation, having kids, not having enough money to take care of them, you know, something like that? And what we're uncovering and what we can model in our life is this capacity to show up, to be alert and relaxed, to do the next thing and the next thing. But from this place of release, right, keep showing up until we can't show up anymore. And there's so much freedom in that. Because it's really, you could say it's the activity of love instead of the activity of greed, anger, and delusion. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. We always ask that people stay to the end, and we'll end right at 8.30. But it's uh, nice to build in some time like we usually do just to hear from people A lot of you have been learning a lot in your life. So it's nice for people to share some of that learning. Maybe it relates to what I've talked about tonight. Maybe not so much. But also any questions that have come up about what I've said. And we do record on Sunday night. Yeah, do you want to start us off? Uh, Third row of chairs. No, wait, wait for the mic, though, just so some people have a hard time hearing. And we are recording, and the mic helps it get captured for the recording. I didn't hear well enough the word that you paired with illusion. It sounded like greeting. Oh, greed, anger, and delusion. These are those three unwholesome roots that the Buddha describes. Yeah. Other questions or comments, sharings from your own, what you've been learning? Yeah. Is it Guru? I forget your name. Uh, Guru. Uh, I might be doing something wrong here. When you said alert and uh, relax at the same time, is that, that's correct, right? Yeah, alert, alert and relax. And relax. When I w- there was a f- brief period of time that I first felt that and it was quite blissful. I don't know if that's the feeling I should uh, use the other word to uh, describe that. But as soon as I'm alert, when I hear somebody around me uh, cough, I start paying attention to that and someone else coughs and then I 
keep paying attention to that. And that's ended up being more ir irritable for me. And I end up, ended up losing a whole uh, the trip that I was on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so really great comments. And, you know, different people have different sort of personalities. And so this, the way Guru's talking about it, it sounds like his mind uh, might have a particular strength towards tranquility and stillness, right, which is good, as opposed to people who have more of a wisdom orientation in their mind. So when you have more of a tranquility orientation, then the activity of our own mind, the activity of sound, that example that you gave, Guru, then that will feel like a, a bit of an assault to the stillness, right? So then what, what you, you don't want to get rid of the stillness. That sensitivity is really useful because it's exposing that the mind feels vulnerable or exposed to sound. But sound is just sound. So then what you're going to do is by noticing the irritation, noticing how the mind wants to leap to the sound and then to the next sound and notice that that's stressful, then just keep observing that because eventually you'll see like wisdom will start to catch up with the tranquility, with the stillness, the bliss and stillness. And the wisdom knows that sound is just sound. So it doesn't need to make waves in the mind as you hear the cacophony of sound, you know, the different sounds, even really disturbing sign, sounds. Like one of the so signs you're having a good sit is something unexpected happens in the hall. Maybe somebody is sitting and they fall asleep and they fall down and they make a loud sound. But there's like no reverberation in your mind. doesn't mean you're not going to get up and do something because you're not attached to sitting still and you're not attached to doing something. So whether you do something is like more a function of, is there anybody who's sitting closer doing anything to see if the person's okay, right? It's real functional. But there's no wave in the mind, even when something really big happens. It's always interesting because we don't have signs about shutting off your cell phones. And, you know, it's not uncommon that somebody will leave it on and then there will go off in the middle of the set. And it's just interesting to notice what the mind does. What's the problem? I mean, I was in this really blissful state being with my breath or being with the stillness, but why can't I just be with the sound? Or why can't I be my, with the reaction my mind has because of the sound? Because they're just phenomena being known. And this is the wisdom part of practice. It's just something being known. It's reducing everything to the simple formula which I, we could put in words, but it's very profound when the mind is really relating. This is being known. It's just this being known. The most beautiful moment of our life, giving birth, it's just this experience being known. The most ordinary moment, just this being known. The most difficult moment, just being known. That's the wisdom. Because that allows for that evenness to be sustained continuously. And so then the response we have, like going to help that person who fell down, for example, will just be a movement of love, not like, you idiot. <laughs> you know, I had to ruin my sit to get up and help you. Yeah, thanks, Guru, for bringing that up. Who'd like to share next? Yeah, want to pass it all the way over here? 
pop out in the corner. And this will be the last sharing. I'm wondering if I'm confused about this. My name is Terry. Um, when I was 19 years old, I had the first experience with meditation in a Japanese uh, Buddhist temple. And uh, my sister and I were offered, would we like a 30-minute or an hour-long sit? And we chose 30-minute. And we sat upon our legs. And at the time, I thought that mindfulness or meditation or the ability to have some control of your mind was, would I be able to be strong enough to allow the sleeping of my legs to just be (laughs) and to stay centered enough to just stay as I was and to be okay with that. And so through the experience, and I did successfully do it, I became fully aware of my heartbeat. And I could feel this tremendous sensation of the heart. And I watched that, and I watched so many things that came about. And I forgot that my feet were asleep. And it was the most stunning experience I've ever had with meditation. And that's what I've always, maybe I'm confused, and if you could straighten it for me, because everything else doesn't ever seem to compare to that. And I, I thought that the training of the mind is so that the mind can become neutral and to be able to watch and, not, and, and to be able to, to get through and to stay even. Right. But the, the question is, how did that even, like what was the actual psychological mechanics that allowed the mind to, to sort of open to that more spacious, vivid, peaceful place that you described, right? What was the actual mechanism? Well, there was a very special environment, young folks in a Japanese Buddhist temple, right? So that probably kind of whatever tendencies in your heart about things being sacred might have gotten activated. So you were like, really listening to this person in kind of an interesting costume, shaved head, right, giving you instructions. You probably took them seriously. No instruction. Oh, no instruction. Well, he told you to sit. (laughs) 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 And then very quickly, the obvious thing to pay attention to was the pain or the yucky feeling. Right, or could I get through it? Yeah, yeah. Could I? And you had this tendency in your mind that a lot of people would have just freaked out and laughed. But you had this ability, you know, probably just who knows where it came from, to sort of get interested as opposed to tighten up around the pain. You got interested. And by getting really interested in that pain, that mind back then wasn't paying attention to anything else. So you didn't see what was going on, but that mind you had dropped everything else. It dropped its petty concerns does my sister like me, you know, or whatever. There was nothing else in the mind except knowing this. And your mind took a vacation from basically who you were. It left it behind. And you became the simple, non-judging, vivid, balanced awareness. Because a lot of the other programming in the mind was dropped because for whatever reason... You brought your attention to the unpleasant sensations in your leg in a whole way. That's the key. How can we have enough interest, enough sincerity, especially in the beginning of our practice, to really show up to the present moment? 
and not to always fall back into the habit of thinking about what I'm doing. We have to really go for it. And for whatever reason, the situation, the circumstances were enough that you did it with enough sincerity and wholeheartedness that you shifted in, we call it samadhi. The mind kind of shifted. And then when we're in samadhi, there's enough inner good feeling that it serves as a counterweight to the pain in the leg or the discomfort in the leg so that we're not obsessed about the pain in the leg. It's just you could probably know that it was there, but it wasn't a problem. Yeah. Thanks, Terry, for sharing that with us. Really cool to hear. And let's let go of the words. Just take a moment. Maybe pass the mic over to Jean in the corner. And we'll just take a few seconds of silence just to let things go. Maybe take a deep breath. And simply notice the space in the mind. The space of here and now. Really nice to be with everyone tonight. Thanks for coming. Happy New Year. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.